Well, if you would turn with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5. And we're going to jump right into the situation here, just reminding us that less than 50,000 Jews have returned to Judah and Jerusalem in about 537 B.C. or so. They completed the foundation of the temple, but as temple construction was about to get underway, we saw last time that chapter 4 records enormous opposition. Opposition is so intimidating, so harsh, that construction stopped for about 16 years. And as we're making our way through Ezra and Nehemiah, we're focusing here on the faithfulness of God, and every message gives us one proof or one piece of evidence that God is faithful and that He is truly, like the hymn says, great is thy faithfulness. So what will God do for this small band of Jews huddled together, huddled up with enormous opposition literally surrounding them? How will He show His faithfulness to them? Well, our proof of God's faithfulness to His people for tonight is that God encourages through prophecy. God encourages through prophecy. That is, He gives the Word of God through men used of the Holy Spirit who superintends the writings of these men to propel God's people to faithfulness, to propel them to obedience and to steadfastness. God's people have been stopped in the tracks in the second year, about 536, 535 B.C. And now we fast forward to 520 B.C. Ezra 5, verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So what precisely did Haggai and Zechariah preach to the Jews in order to motivate them to faithfulness, to courage, and to obedience? What got them going again after 16 years of being stuck? Well, tonight I'd like to find out. So turn with me to Haggai chapter 1. And it's right near the end of your Old Testament. Just a few books from the, the end. Haggai chapter 1, right after Zephaniah, right before Zechariah. There's a reason that Haggai and Zechariah are put together in the canon of Scripture. Because they're both preaching at the same time, the same message to the same people in the same situation. What I'd like to do is just highlight some themes in kind of a high-altitude flyover and, and simply ask the question, what encouragements would God give to the Jews to get back to building the temple despite the presence of opposition, despite the presence of intimidation, despite the presence of enemies all around them? And so we're just going to number them as we go. The first encouragement we'll call the presence of God. The presence of God. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And so in their fear, the people stopped building the temple. But in the meantime, they were building some pretty nice country homes for themselves. 
This was not why God called them out from Babylonia to return home. He called them to reestablish temple worship, the temple worship of God. And the fact that we pointed out a few messages ago, the people who came from Babylonia, the, the exiles, they came with tremendous wealth with which to restart the nation and to rebuild the temple. But verses 5 and 6 here indicate that they lost their wealth. They lost much of it and they're struggling. They have new houses, but they're short on food. They're short on clothing. They're living hand to mouth day to day because they've been disobedient. And so here's God's call to them. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. In other words, they've been in a famine. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. But God's rebuke is not without comfort. He gives them comfort. Verse 13, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. This is the basic promise they needed to motivate them right at the outset. I am with you. That God's presence is promised. This is exactly the same promise that the Lord Jesus Christ has made to every single one of us who have repented of our sins and trusted Him for forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Hebrews 13.5, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is very important because the, the basic fact of the presence of God continually with those who are really His that's what makes whatever's swirling around you dangerously irrelevant. That's what makes everything else irrelevant. You're always in the eye of the storm. You're always in the presence of God. And so they're encouraged by the presence of God. There's a second encouragement we'll call the victory of God. The victory of God. Once again, God assures the Jews of his presence, but then he tells them about coming victory over all of his enemies. Chapter 2 of Haggai Verse 4, the middle of verse 4, he says, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You hear a theme here, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord who owns all the armies. He's powerful, he's strong, and he's going to be victorious. And so God's telling them, about a series of events here. That first of all, God will shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and the dry land in judgment. When does that happen? Hasn't happened yet. But see also Revelation 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, all the way through 18. That's the time that God will shake the heavens and the earth. Jesus calls that the time of the great tribulation. 
The second thing he says is going to happen in verse 7. He'll shake all the nations. This is speaking of bringing them to humble service. Because now, instead of antagonizing Jerusalem, antagonizing the temple, they'll be bringing tribute. They'll be bringing glory to Jerusalem and to the temple. The third event, the temple of God will be filled with glory. And he says more glory than it had even during the reign of Solomon in the first glorious temple. And finally, the prayer of Jews for the last 4,000 years. In verse 9, in this place I will give you peace. This is a major prayer from the Bible. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. This is a great lesson for us because I don't know about you, but sometimes my life feels like simply jumping from one defeat to another. That that's kind of how our life is, is charted. From one trial that's bad and you say, whew, got through that one. Then you get to something that's worse and you say, I'd like to go back to the first one. But the fact is, is that just like here in Haggai chapter 2, for the believer in Christ, you have victory over sin, you have victory over death. And you have that now, but that victory will be consummated someday. It will be completed when all defeats are turned around, when all heartache is restored and healed. I, I don't think we can really grasp the majesty and the height and the width of the words of Jesus on his throne when he says in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. How do you even comprehend that? But that's what God is telling the Jews here in Haggai 2. It's a, it's a glorious and ungraspable truth that is one of the greatest anchors of our faith that every moment of pain will be made right. They get a third encouragement. We'll call this the prosperity of God. The prosperity of God. And now we turn to Zechariah chapter 1. Zechariah 1 verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, And the Lord shows him a vision of four heavenly beings, three angels, and one called the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever there's a physical manifestation named the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, we, we preached 17 messages on this a couple of Christmases ago. This is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And the angel of the Lord prays to his father on behalf of Jerusalem. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. And so God the Father answers God the Son in verse 16 of chapter 1. Therefore, says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. I think something that's important to point out at this point is that unlike Pretty much every other major kingdom in history, the Jews have never had aspirations for world domination. That's never been the case. The aspiration of the Jew is expressed very simply in terms of a simple agrarian life of peace. Here's the aspiration of the Jew. Amos 9.14, God says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Here it is. 
They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. That's it. A life of peace living in the land that God gave them. The prosperity of God. There's a fourth encouragement we'll call the coming of God. The coming of God. God promises total protection of Jerusalem someday. Zechariah 2, beginning in the middle of verse 4. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Verse 6 promises that God will regather all the Jews who have been scattered over all the world. And suddenly, as you progress through chapter 2, you get a sense that God is talking about an age in history that has never been. One that hasn't happened yet. An age when nations will all serve the Lord. An age when God Himself is dwelling in Jerusalem. And He makes this very, very clear in chapter 2, verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, that is Jerusalem. For behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God is coming. What an encouragement. There's a fifth encouragement we'll call the representative of God. The representative of God. We see the angel of the Lord again a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, and he appears now to the high priest Joshua, or as he's referred to in Ezra Nehemiah, Jeshua, same guy. Zechariah 3, look with me at verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Who is this branch? Well, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know the branch. Isaiah 11.1 There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The branch is a man, a man descended from Jesse, the father of David, a prophecy of the coming of Christ. In other words, if I could put it this way, the angel of the Lord could have said to Joshua the high priest, I will bring my servant the branch. It's me. And we begin to get a hint as to what the branch is going to do as the holy divine representative of God on earth. We know what he's going to do on day one. Verse nine of Zechariah three. Behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. That's day one of the rule of Christ on earth. Peace is established by the branch, and Israel's dreams come true. Dreams of a simple and peaceful life on the land that God gave them. Verse 10 In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Now you notice that already the presence of the angel of the Lord has been seen in chapters 1 and 3. And so the Messiah figures very centrally into the the comfort of the Jews in their moment of hesitation and doubt. And this is going to get more and more obvious as we go. We can't really get away from it. 
There's a sixth encouragement we'll call the prophets of God. The prophets of God. Zechariah 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. And so we have two olive trees, but the angel doesn't identify them for Zechariah. Instead, he speaks once again of how the temple of God will be built. Verse 6, how is the temple going to be built? Then he said to me in verse 6, this is not the word, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Put that in the top 10 most taken out of context verses in the church of Jesus Christ. And every obstacle, every obstacle to the rebuilding of the temple, everything that seems like a great mountain in front of you will be removed. Verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall come forward to the top, forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. But we don't want to forget about the two olive trees. Zechariah asked about them. He didn't forget about them either. He wants to know what they are. Chapter 4, verse 11, Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay? The olive trees aren't things. They're men. But what men would come concerned for Jerusalem and who represent God on earth? And it doesn't appear that that the angel gave Zechariah any more of an answer. But we have the answer. Keep your finger there and turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 11. We'll be here for a moment. Verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 11 describes the giving over of Jerusalem and the temple to wickedness for 42 months. We're fast forwarding now to a time that hasn't been. We're now in the last half of the great tribulation. This is yet future from our standpoint. But during this time, chapter 11, verse 3, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they shall prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they're in Jerusalem. Who are the olive trees? The lampstands of the presence of God. Who are they? They are these two coming witnesses. Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Same phrase used in Zechariah 4. And these two witnesses to Christ are mighty men. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So all during the terrible reign of Antichrist during the last 42 months, the 1,260 days of the Great Tribulation, these two unstoppable witnesses are a thorn in the side of Antichrist's world system. And they're witnessing of Christ specifically in Jerusalem for three and a half years. But when they've fulfilled God's plan, the beast from the bottomless pit, perhaps Apollyon, will kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of Jerusalem. Verses 8 and 9 says that peoples from all over the world will mock them. They'll party at their demise, even exchanging gifts like it's Christmas. Because the world hates the gospel. These men have tormented humanity with the gospel of Christ for three and a half years and now they're dead. Who are these men? They seem kind of familiar to us, don't they? Men who bring heavenly fire and stop rain for three and a half years like Elijah. Men who turn water to blood and bring plagues like Moses. And we can make a very good case that these men are in fact Moses and Elijah returned to earth to minister once again. How do we make that case? Well, at the transfiguration of Jesus, it was Moses and Elijah with whom Jesus met, possibly giving them their marching orders for this very event. Both the Old Testament and Jewish tradition expect the return of both Moses and Elijah. In Deuteronomy 18, God told Moses that a prophet like Moses would come. Now, this is fulfilled in Christ himself, but Jews have often believed this is speaking of Moses himself. Many prophecies in Scripture have multiple fulfillments, so that wouldn't be unusual. The last promise of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Jesus said that John the Baptist fulfills the spirit of Elijah as a forerunner, but the Jews rejected Christ. And the Jews today still expect the return of Elijah. In fact, those who still celebrate Passover have inserted a portion of the evening where they pray and hope for the return of Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah left the earth in very unique ways. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of, well, you guessed it, fire. Moses was taken alone by God to die on Mount Pisgah, a completely unique occurrence, dying alone in the presence of God, buried by God himself in a completely secret grave. We know this from the book of Jude, that sometime after the death of Moses, the archangel Michael was in a dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. We're not told why, but our best guess is that Satan would want the body of Moses so that a resurrected Moses couldn't come back later. Who better to preach to God's beloved Israel than the prophets that they have longed to see, Elijah and Moses? But now they're dead in the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. We'll stop right there for a moment. What do we have here? A personal two-man rapture. And interestingly, this is Elijah's second trip this way. He's 
Moses, let me show you how that's done here. And suddenly there's a massive earthquake in Jerusalem with a tenth of the city crumbling. 7,000 people are killed in the earthquake. Who are these men that are killed? In Greek, they're called the 7,000 named men, meaning they're officials. They're officials of Antichrist himself. When the tenth of the city fell, it fell selectively on Antichrist's officials. And now the Jews in Jerusalem had great fear. Verse 13 says, they gave glory to the God of heaven. This parallels the idea of fearing God and giving glory. Those two ideas, they're found four other times in the book of Revelation. And every time they refer to genuine repentance and salvation in Christ. All of a sudden, Jerusalem is filled with saved Jews. God is restoring Israel. And Christ is coming soon. Chapter 11, verse 15 and then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The moment when Christ says enough and gets ready to invade his planet and judge those who have been breathing his air, eating his food, walking on his ground, drinking his water, blaspheming his name and killing his people. And the moment has arrived. What does the angel call them to Zechariah? These two men, just a couple of olive trees. But we know who they are. Turn back to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah 5, and we have now our seventh encouragement. Seventh encouragement, the vindication of God. The vindication of God. Zechariah 5, verse 1, Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And I said to, he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. This is big. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So we have this flying scroll. This is representative of the law of God by which mankind, not under the grace of God, will all be judged. So you have the flying scroll. In in chapter 5, things are flying all over the place. Now you get another flying object. This time it's a basket in verses 5 and following. And in the basket will be placed all the iniquity, all the sin and idolatry of the land. And the basket full of sin and iniquity and idolatry will be flown away. But where is it going? Verse 9 of chapter 5. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Sin is taken symbolically to the land of Shinar, that is Babylon. This is the site of Israel's exile, Israel's exile, and also the site of the future idolatrous rebellion against God during the Great Tribulation. Revelation 17, 3-5 says this is the site of sin. And so you, you have this 
setting down of the basket when sin is ready to come forth again. But it's taken out of Israel. The point here is that at some point in time, God will remove wickedness from His people, remove it from His land, and the nation will have peace from the sin and the rebellion and the anguish that's plagued them for thousands of years. And this is something that we have to endure, isn't it? One of the greatest forms of suffering we endure on this earth is injustice. Wicked people seemingly being allowed to wreck our lives at a national level. Wicked people wrecking our lives at a state level and at a personal level. Injustice and wickedness allowed to run rampant. It's very difficult for us to endure because we long for justice because we serve a God of justice. But the day is coming when God will vindicate Himself. He will set all things right. Sin will be carried away, being prepared to be crushed forever as it were. All who have falsely claimed to follow God will be, I love this phrase here, cleaned out. They'll be cleaned out. There's an eighth encouragement we'll call the branch of God. I know we've already talked about the branch as the representative of God and that we've already seen the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's getting harder and harder to, to get away from the fact that the primary encouragement to the Jews who stopped building the temple in, in Ezra 5, the primary encouragement is Jesus. That's the, the goal here. Zechariah 6, beginning in verse 12. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. This is the first time and to my knowledge, the only time in scripture that the reasoning for the name of Jesus as the branch is given. In Isaiah 11, he's the branch of Jesse. And we think of that, well, he, he grew from Jesse and that we understand that metaphor. But here, his branchness, if I could put it that way, is the fact that his influence has spread like a branch bears fruit, bears leaves. But not only will the branch, the ruling king, when Christ returns, not only will he build a glorious temple as described in detail in Ezekiel 40 through 48, he will also build a temple made up of the people of God. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The branch of God. What an encouragement. The Jews get a ninth encouragement. We'll call this the gospel of God. The gospel of God, and somebody maybe unfamiliar with the Old Testament might say, well, wait a minute, you can't talk about the gospel in the Old Testament. That's New Testament. Well, we talk about whatever God talks about, and he talks about the gospel. Zechariah 7, verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer, and Regim Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month 
as I have done for so many years. So we're going forward a couple years now. The temple has been under construction for two years. The people have been heeding the message of Haggai and Zechariah. And some delegates from Bethel, which is 12 miles north of Jerusalem, they've come, and this is interesting because it's previously the center of apostate false worship from the, the 10 tribes of Israel that were later taken away. But in Bethel, in this whole area, they had imposed a religious observance, a fast. And during the fifth month of each year, they remembered the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. 2 Kings 25 records that it was during the fifth month of the Jewish calendar, that's July, August for us, that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem back in 586 BC. So they're asking, should we keep this fast? Should we keep weeping and abstaining from food in the fifth month as we have done for many years? But in response to this question, Zechariah 7 and 8, God gives Zechariah four mini-sermons, four messages. The answer to the question about keeping the sad and somber time of fasting doesn't come until the final message. See if you can follow the logic of these four messages, and I'll name them for you to help us follow the logic. Message number one, we would entitle, You are guilty in sin. You are guilty in sin. Chapter 7, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? They observed a fast in the fifth month and a fast in the seventh month. This was to remember the murder of Gedaliah, the governor of Judah, right after the fall of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 41 records this. The point of this message, message number one, you are guilty in sin, is that these were self-imposed religious activities that were not only outdated, but they didn't make any sense anymore. Israel had returned. People had returned. There was no reason for this. But they observed this fast without an internal reality of faith. It became a dead religious ritual. Message number two, we would entitle, Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Chapter 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another, In your heart. What God is doing here is he's recounting the unfaithfulness of the previous generations which had resulted in the exile in the first place. Instead of religious externalism, God desired genuine internal spiritual faith in him. What had the previous generation done at the warning of God? When they heard the warning of God, verse 11, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. God is recounting that the previous generation refused to repent. Message number three, we could entitle, Be Restored to God. 
Be restored to God. Listen to this beautiful description of restoration because of God's love for Israel. Chapter 8, verse 1. This is just idyllic. And the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And in verse 12, For there shall be a sowing of peace, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give its produce, the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. And then he tells them what true repentance, what true spiritual, internal restoration to God truly looks like when faith is an internal reality. Verse 16 These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. What's he describing? He's describing a future new covenant reality of obedience to the Lord because they are all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And message number four, we can entitle Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember the original question? The original question was, should we keep these somber and sad feasting or fasting days rather to remember the destruction of Jerusalem and the murder of one of our leaders? And the short answer is no. The fasts are now to become feasts. Quit keeping these. Verse 19, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth. Oh, hold on right there. God exposes the fact that they said, should we keep the one? They were keeping four that they made up. He goes on, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Let me put it to you this way. We have a ceremony that's very important to us, and that is the Lord's table. And we've said this many times, the Lord's table has an element of joy to it, but there's also an element of sadness because we're remembering the death of the Lord. Do you think that there will be that element of sadness still there when, as the Lord Jesus said, when we are with him, he will raise his cup as well? No, at that point, it's all feasting. It's all joy. And so God tells them, rejoice in the Lord. Now, did you hear the gospel presentation? You are guilty in sin. Repent of your sin. Be restored to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's a gospel presentation. 
and look at what's happening in the future time when Christ is reigning on earth. And I would say for all who would say that Israel's glory is past and God is done with Israel as a nation, look at verse 21 of chapter 8. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. In other words, the greatest thing to do is let's go learn about God. Let's go see God. Verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and I would just pause here for a moment, for everyone who has been taught wrongly that God has done with Israel, listen to this. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There's a tenth encouragement we'll call the entrance of God. The entrance of God. At this point, again, trying to skirt the issue that the primary encouragement is messianic. It's impossible. You'll recognize this text quite immediately. Look with me at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now you get to something familiar. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he... Here it is, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophecy says, behold, your king is coming to you. And somebody might say, how will we know who he is? He's the one who's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Who is that? Jesus Christ, the king. Yes, it is him. But he would come first to die for the sins of all who would believe on him to be the sacrifice of the new covenant, and then he will return. Zechariah 9, verse 10, the end of the verse, he shall rule from sea to, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. His rule shall be peaceful to all the nations, but what will have happened first, the beginning of verse 10, he'll destroy his enemies. At his first coming, Jesus was identified as the king of Israel by fulfilling this prophecy. But at his second coming, chapter 9, verse 14, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. God is coming. There's an 11th encouragement we'll call the family of God. The family of God. Cannot get away from this fact, but every Jew from every age who has had genuine faith in the Lord and whose sins have been paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, all of them will be gathered home. Zechariah 10, verse 8. I love this. I will whistle for them and gather them in. For I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before, though I scattered them among the nations. Yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. Doesn't this have a family reunion feel to it? Every true Jew, Paul said in Romans 2.29, that a true Jew is one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and has been transformed spiritually, not just outwardly. Every single one of them will be brought home. Every one. There's a twelfth encouragement we'll call the sovereign plan of God. 
the sovereign plan of God. And this one is a little bit harder because the Jews will have to go through a terrible, terrible dark time. A time which will bring them tears. A time which will bring them anguish. A time when they reject the very Messiah that they've been promised in Haggai and Zechariah up to this point. And by the way, it's a time that the Jews as a nation are in today. Chapter 11, verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now what is this? This is very geographic. This is basically speaking of the very northern part of Israel, Lebanon, to the very southern tip of Israel, the Jordan. And it speaks of total destruction that's coming. And this would be fulfilled in 70 AD when Rome wearies of insurrections and just devastates Israel, including the total destruction of Jerusalem and the very temple that the Jews are rebuilding in Ezra 5. In verses 4 through 14, Zechariah himself is directed to play the part, as it were, of Israel's true shepherd, Israel's Messiah, but that this flock of God would reject him. And in verses 12 and 13, a future disobedient Israel would make an evaluation of the worth of their Messiah. They would make an evaluation of just how valuable the true chief shepherd is. Here's the evaluation, verse 13. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. The lordly price is sarcasm. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. This evaluation of the worth of Messiah was fulfilled when Judas took the 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus Christ. He eventually threw the money back in the temple to the priests and they didn't want the blood money so they bought a field with it belonging to a potter. The potter's field. Verse 15 because Israel rejected the true shepherd of Israel, Israel will in, will in the future accept a foolish shepherd, a worthless shepherd. Who is this? Daniel 9 says that they will enter into a covenant with him. This worthless shepherd is the Antichrist, who will at first seem to be the Messiah of Israel in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, but he'll break his covenant with them and he'll begin persecuting Israel, even setting up an image of himself to be worshipped. But verse 17 promises that the reign of this worthless shepherd will be short. This is the sovereign plan of God to allow this long period so far, 2,000 years or so of darkness, that the reign of the worthless shepherd will be short. He will be destroyed in verse 17. And in the meantime, Israel would suffer terribly at his hands. So what's their hope? What hope do they have? Our 13th encouragement we'll call the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Chapter 12, 1 through 9 describes that Jerusalem will be under siege. They'll be surrounded by the ungodly right before the battle of Armageddon. This is it. This is the big moment. Verse 3 of chapter 12, all the nations will have gathered against Jerusalem just like the Jews in Ezra 5 are feeling. And in that terrible time, God will do something wonderful. 
What is the most wonderful thing that God can do for a person? It is to destroy his pride and open his eyes to his need for repentance. And that is precisely at this moment what happens during these terrible last days of the Great Tribulation. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Israel will become, at the end of the Great Tribulation, a spirit-indwelt nation. We already saw this with the two witnesses. What happens to all the Jews in Jerusalem? They all get saved. And look how Israel, a saved and spirit-indwelt people, is now going to behave Chapter 13, verse 2, all idolatry stops. Chapter 13, verse 3, even the parents of false prophets will disown them and execute them personally. They'll love Christ even above family. Verse 4, no more deceiving prophets. And how will this transformation take place? It'll take place by the salvation purchased by the suffering Messiah at the cross, the one whom they have pierced. And suddenly, chapter 13 takes us forward in time to Jerusalem, to the night Jesus would be arrested. Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, Jesus said that his disciples would abandon him at his arrest, and they did. And he cites Zechariah 13, 7, that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. The disciples did scatter, but that was just a partial fulfillment of a much bigger picture. It was a a representation of the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that after Israel crucified her Messiah, Jerusalem would be destroyed in 70 AD, and God's people scattered around the world so far for 2,000 years. In verse 8, we come once again to the time of the Great Tribulation and the Jews, prior to their eyes being opened, will suffer tremendously. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. Two out of three Jews during the Great Tribulation will be killed at the hands of Antichrist. But finally... True Israel will call upon their Messiah. Verse 9. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. And what happens when the survivors are saved by the mercy of God and call upon God for help? Our 14th encouragement The return of God. The return of God. What's been happening during Zechariah 13 when the nations are gathered against Jerusalem and Jerusalem is under siege and the two witnesses, the olive trees, all the way back to chapter 4, have been preaching and Jews getting saved. All of this happening at the same time. What has been happening right in these final moments, these final days? Matthew 24, verse 30 tells us, 
Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The end of the book of Daniel indicates that this could take 30 days of them looking and seeing that something is coming, and it turns out to be the Messiah. And now, Zechariah 14. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Why has the Lord Jesus landed, as it were, on the Mount of Olives? Because that's where he ascended into heaven. Verse 5. And you shall flee to the valley by my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Here's the encouragement to the Jews of Ezra chapter 5. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Verse 10, the whole land is going to be turned into a, a plain so that Jerusalem becomes literally the highest point on earth. Chapter 14, verse 11, it shall be inhabited. There shall never again be a decree of destruction. Chapter 12, or verse 12 rather, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they're still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Verse 13, great panic falling on all the peoples so that they're fighting one another. Verse 14, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. This is now after the battle. Gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. How is this possible? Because Matthew 25 says that God will judge all of the survivors and execute all who don't know him. That at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, every person on earth will be a Christian. What a day. But then they'll have kids, and the kids are sinners. Verse 17, And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain for them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. Verse 20, And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord, and the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on day, that day. Remember the two times that Jesus cleared the temple? Zechariah says, never again. 
Never again will that be necessary. This is the reign of Jesus Christ on earth from his capital city of Jerusalem. So Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the discouraged, downtrodden Jews in Ezra 5, verse 1. Take one more moment and turn back with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Insert Haggai and Zechariah right here. Verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the temple of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. No wonder Ezra 5.2 says that they began building again. Wouldn't that be great to have the prophets of God with you, supporting you? You do. You just heard from two of them. What a tag team, Haggai and Zechariah. And who did they prophesy of? Their prophecies were all centered on Christ. You see, the prophecies of Christ propel us to faith because not only does the Bible prophesy the first coming of Christ, and we have so many prophecies of the first coming of Christ, it gives us a lot of confidence about the Bible's prophecies of the second coming of Christ, doesn't it? This is meant to encourage you that the gospel, that your salvation will be consummated, it will be completed. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of this isn't the kingdom yet. And it ends on a low note. But Haggai and Zechariah encouraged them to look forward to the true coming kingdom all based on the reign of a true and coming king. What are the last words of Jesus Christ in the Bible? The very last words we have recorded in the Bible by our Savior, surely I am coming soon. And what's the last prayer recorded in the Bible? Amen, come soon, Lord Jesus. That's Haggai, that's Zechariah. Amen, come soon, Lord Jesus. And what happened with these Jews, just a few thousand of them, surrounded by enemies, they got up and they did God's work fearlessly because of the prophets of God. We have them in our hands. You can read them anytime. And I hope that encourages you as it has me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this stunning passage of Scripture, Lord. How encouraging it is that you have sent men to earth And you have superintended their writings, Lord. You have, through the Holy Spirit's work, given them your message. And they bridge the gap. These are messages written by real men, Haggai and Zechariah, men who are flesh and blood men that we will meet in heaven. And yet they write the message of God, thus bridging the gap between heaven and earth. And so, Lord, I pray for those among us this night who are discouraged, who are downtrodden, who feel like they're jumping from one defeat to another, jumping from the frying pan to the fire. I pray, Lord, that they would remember that according to the prophets you have sent before, all things will be made new. And we hear that even from the words of our Savior himself. I pray that this is an encouragement to those who are feeling downtrodden and suffering from hopelessness, Lord, that our hope is certain, our future is true. And we thank you and praise you for revealing this to us in your word. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.